Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome to the latest episode of NucleCast. Of course, I am your host, as always, Adam Lowther. And today we have a very special guest. You may know him as one of the deans of the nuclear community, one of the graybeards of our profession. He is, of course, a don of this field and one of the great thinkers and writers and people that we all look to, including myself, for guidance and mentorship in the nuclear realm. That is, of course, one Franklin Miller. He, of course, was a senior nuclear policy official and spent 30 years in the government making things actually happen. With that, Frank, thanks for joining us on NucleCast. Thank you very much, and thanks for that overly generous introduction. I won't fact-check you. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, it's great to have you on. We you, you haven't been on the show before, and this is a for at least for me is an opportunity for for us to have a broad discussion about where we stand with our nuclear enterprise both the weapons side you know when it comes to the warheads we have to the delivery vehicles to the policies we have we you know it's a chance to have a, a large overriding discussion about all these critical issues so let me jump in and ask you sort of a a big question. And, and that's, you know, we've, we, we recently had a nuclear posture review. That nuclear posture review did a few things. It said that we're going to get rid of the hedge and we're, we're not going to uh, complete the development and fielding of Slickamin, the submarine launch cruise missile that's nuclear. And so I wonder if that NPR has been overcome by events, both in Russia and in China, well, and North Korea as well. So I think that the world is changing quite rapidly, and and if you if you believe that the NPR people started thinking about things in say the spring of of twenty twenty one, the world's very different now. I mean, the world's very different now from twenty ten, which is basically when the nuclear modernization program was set in place. And I think if you look at all the changes that have occurred, um, where we are in terms of, of, of a program, in terms of, of warheads, uh, and in terms of policy, really, um, we're kind of living in the past and need to confront the world of 2023 and beyond. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, for, for myself personally, as I've spin a career, I've become a staunch peace hawk, and then I'm a big fan of peace. I'm not a big fan of war. I didn't enjoy it whenever I was in uniform, and I don't like it now. And by virtue of being a, somebody who, you know, is a peace hawk, I have to be an advocate of a strong nuclear deterrent. 
And I wonder if we are building in our modernization plan the right nuclear arsenal to ensure that those of us who are Peace Hawks uh, carry the day. Because I'm not sure we are building that right arsenal. So let me let me start by saying I think that the modernization program we have today is essential, but it's not sufficient. And and I, I'll, I'll expand on that. So, you know, the modernization program, as I said, was sort of conceived in 2010 and has proceeded since then. And it and the if you look at the 2010 NPR, Russia and China aren't threats. China's hardly mentioned. It's all about nonproliferation. Um, you fast forward to today, and and this administration's policy says Russia and China are definitely threats, and China is a growing force. Um, what I think the the administration's policy doesn't say, but needs to think about in the future, is it is not totally out of the realm of the possible that at some point China and Russia could announce a treaty of friendship. And I think that we need to be in a position very soon to be able to deter both Russia and China. Now, I mean, we don't have any intelligence that suggests that there's going to be a, a treaty of mutual support and friendship. And and uh, we do have, we have the, you know, the, the, the Biden G, uh, I'm sorry, goodness gracious. We have the, the, the Putin G uh, agreement of friendship without limits. We've got joint exercises. But the way of the world is that dictators can simply announce something and, and, and you have to confront it. I mean, look at the Hitler-Stalin pact. Nobody saw that coming, and there it was. And our own recovery capabilities, given the defense industrial base, are slow. So we need to anticipate a bad future. We need to talk about, in the out years, the modernization program being expanded to have more submarines and more bombers and more LRSO. And we need to start considering things that we would do once the new start limits expire, like uploading. All of this to take care of a, a very uncertain and, and, and potentially dangerous future. Now, you've just, you know, you've given me three or four questions with, with your your statement here. And, and so let me go with the first one. And, you know, I, I completely agree with you that the modernization program we're engaging in is absolutely necessary. But I wonder if what we're not doing with our sort of failure to develop a sufficient, let's call it tactical, theater range, lower yields, that that, because I don't worry that much about an exchange of ICBMs over the poles, but I do worry a lot about the use of a small number of low yield tactical nuclear weapons. And I especially worry that we don't have the f- sufficient capability employed in Europe and Asia to deter Russia and China from using their their weapons sort of as an offset or as a fiat accompli against our clearly superior you know precision strike capabilities do you see that a similar problem or do you see it differently no i th- i think we're 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 close um so I think as the NATO air forces and U.S. Air Force Europe transition from F-15Es and tornadoes to F-35s and a B-6112, I think that's going to be a pretty credible 
regional deterrent capability on behalf of the alliance. And you add to that the W76-2. So now you've got two forms of of regional deterrence. Um, that's not the case in the Pacific. And despite years of the policymakers trying to get the Air Force to um, do some dual capable deployments to, say, Guam or, or to Hawaii, um, that's not going to happen. So you're left with a W76-2. And I'm not comfortable with giving the president only one option in a regional contingency. So I fully support the notion of proceeding as soon as we can, which I think means 20, 2032, 2033, with a nuclear tip sea launch cruise missile to bolster deterrence in the Pacific region alongside the, the 76-2. It gives the president two options, a ballistic and a cruise. And I think that that, that will be something we need to consider sooner rather than later. Now, the, the the challenge, you know, I've thought a lot about the 76-2 and, you know, its strengths and weaknesses. And while I completely agree that, it, you know, it was it was this effort that was required at the time, it was the fastest, easiest way to get a low-yield option. But, you know, we, we've sort of had some time to, to really correct the problem. And I wonder if by virtue of because you're eliminating strategic warheads and, you know, MERV capability on, you know, what are boats that have limited, you know, limited tubes, limited warhead numbers for that, you know, that single warhead, low yield warhead is the trade off that you're, you're making. You know, I wonder if it's really worth it or should we be aspiring and pushing much harder for, you know, not just, uh, slick them in, but for a ground-based uh, nuclear weapon, much, you know, because we had nuclear weapons in Taiwan till the 70s. We had them in Korea. Should we be pushing for something that's more akin to our, the historical precedent, or should we be looking to keep nuclear weapons on submarines? I'm not sure we had them in Taiwan, but that we can both go back and look at the record on that. Certainly we did have them in Korea. So again, I think that as we go into the 2020s and beyond, we're going to have to bulk up the force. We're going to have to upload um, the existing Trident missiles. We're going to have to upload our Minuteman capability. We're going to have to buy a whole lot LRSO to equip the B-52s. Um, we're going to have to do things like uh, return the, the four tubes on each Ohio that were taken out of operational service as a result of New Start. So we're going to have more warheads, you know, and, and I'm, I'm not worried about that. The thing about, about the W76-2 is that it's got a probability of arrival about 0.99. You know, if, if, if we shoot a Trident weapon, it's going to get there. And, and, Another thing about a weapon like that is that enemy radars can track it, so they know exactly where it's going. So this nonsense that it'll be seen as a as a precursor or part of a strategic nuclear attack that's that's nonsense, and, and the Russians and the Chinese know that and they have the capability to track it. So there are very many advantages to a seventy six two. On the other hand, that says to the president, you've got you've got one option. And I don't like giving the president just one option. So again, I think it's it's been our history to give the president multiple options. 
And I think that's why a Slickum N would be worthwhile. If we could go to the point you're making of having ground launch systems, that would be something to consider as well. Um, before we do that, I'd, I'd like to see a much faster push to deploy the conventional Navy um, conventional prompt strike system and its Army equivalent, the long-range hypersonic weapon, because those are critically needed now, both in Europe and in Asia, to take care of the A2AD systems that threaten our naval forces. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a crawl, run, walk, crawl, walk, run, and I think we're, we need to move down that lane. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Now, I, I, you know, as we talk about the systems and those requirements, we, we've yet to talk about sort of American will. And I, I wonder, you know, even if we built this arsenal that we were aspiring to, you know, as I read some of the scenarios and then, you know, as I've played Title Ten War Games over the years, the I don't see the sufficient will to maintain American credibility. And and by that I mean they thought Reagan was crazy enough to use nuclear weapons and they thought Trump was probably willing to use them, but they don't always think every president is willing to use them. And so uh, I wonder how the United States maintains a higher level of credibility and you know a perception that we we will use nuclear weapons that you know you can't create this fiat accompli with their use uh how, how do you suggest that we handle this this sort of challenge that there's this perception of american will being insufficient well i think part of the story is that we need to tell our own tale and and we need to take credit for what we have done so both in the previous administration and in this administration for example we have we have put more U.S. forces on the ground in Europe, uh, and, and you know traditionally the question is, would the United States trade a U.S. city for an allied city? I mean that's the classic sure. question, whether it's a NATO question from the fifties and now, or whether it's a whether it's a Pacific question. The answer is there's nothing we can do to say to you absolutely on the day, no question, one hundred percent guarantee. But what we can do is we can make pledges to do that. And we can back that up with deployment of, of forces and hardware, which is traditionally the way we've done it. You know, not to go into history too much, but when when McNamara and the Kennedy administration brought in flexible response, the Allies said, well, that means you're not going to use nuclear weapons to, to defend us. You're going to fight a conventional war on our soil again. And the United States responded by deploying over 7,000 tactical nuclear weapons to Europe. Probably too many. But the point is we did it with hardware. You know, we did it again with with ground launch crews in Pershing to offset the, the Russian threat of the SS-20. So now we're doing it with, with, with F-35s and B-61-12s. Um, we've done it with the 76 too. Uh, we're going to do it, I hope, with a, with a Slickham N. We're doing it by rebuilding all of our nuclear forces and by, by doing more exercises with the Allies in both Europe and the Pacific. We've done AUKUS. So again, I mean, I think... This administration and its predecessors are putting their money where their mouth is. No one's going to, you know, the, the, the ultimate skeptics can say, well, okay, well, you, just, you haven't shown me that you're going to be there on the day. I think my answer is 
well, our whole policy is designed, as you were kind of suggesting, to prevent that day from ever coming. Yeah. That's what deterrence is about. Now, unfortunately, we're at that time in the show where we have to take a quick break. We're talking to Frank Miller about all things nuclear, and we'll be right back. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the Anwar Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. And we're back. You're listening to NucleCast, and we're having a great conversation. Now, you made a, a sort of a, a great point that we were hoping that that day never comes. That's that's the whole point of what we do. It's the whole point of our profession. And I I wonder as we take a look at the strategic environment. You know, we've we've seen that the the Brits are expanding their arsenal, and I remember. You know, I, I used to take Air Force officers that were in my schoolhouse and we would go up to Faz Lane and, and see their facilities and we'd go to AWE and sit down and get the briefings. And and there was this small cadre of Brits that sort of understand nukes and, you know, ensure this, the utility and the of the British nuclear arsenal, but by and large, there wasn't a lot of discussion. There wasn't sort of widespread support, but so in, in that sort of political and domestic environment, they've seen that there is this need for expansion. What do you think is sort of driving the, the British move and what are the dynamics at play? Well, I've been very close to the British deterrent for almost 40 years now, and I still continue to play in, in that sphere. So, you know, the debate was in, in the 2010s, did they need a nuclear deterrent? Uh, you know, sort of 20, uh, Obama administration, uh, NPR 2010, Russia's not a threat. And, and enough people said, absolutely, we do need a nuclear deterrent in the United Kingdom. We need it for our own purposes. We need it for NATO purposes. When it came to a parliamentary vote, the vote was overwhelming. It was, it was like 400 to 100 to build a new class of SSBNs, which they have now embarked upon. Um, they did a, a, a review about two years ago, uh, an integrated review, which said, um, yes, uh, the world is getting more dangerous. Uh, we, we need to add more warheads to our force to the degree that we're able to do so now. Uh, we need to collaborate with the United States on helping, helping build ourselves a new warhead for the future. So I, I think, you know, public opinion in the United Kingdom before the invasion of Ukraine recognized the threats posed to NATO and the UK and our overall alliance capabilities. 
by by Russia. The Russian invasion of of Ukraine and, and the savagery uh, associated with that that we've seen has only added to the UK's determination to be a, a strong nuclear partner with us in the NATO alliance. So I think they're moving in the right direction. Now, if if I were to give you now, I don't know if I don't think I've ever told you this, but I do have a crystal ball and I sometimes, you know, lend it out. And so if I were to lend you that crystal ball and let you, you know, sort of see the future, what do you see in in the future for the United States and for conflict and the strategic environment? Well, I think the world is, as I said, dangerous. I mean, I think I've said this before, there are echoes of the 1930s where you've got a a Hitler who believes that the West is not going to defend itself, where you've got a, a Xi Jinping who, like the, the Japanese militarists in the 1930s, thought that the United States was too weak to defend its itself in the, in the Pacific. And I think we are pushing back. You know, I think everything that NATO has done to strengthen NATO's military capabilities to deter... Um, have have sent a, a signal that yes we are determined to protect ourselves and and thank you Mr. Putin you know bringing um, helping to, to bring Finland and Sweden into the alliance and, and making the Baltic truly an, an almost a NATO lake that's important to deterring aggression there I think again the work that we're doing with the australians which is about much more than submarines it's about intelligence sharing and technology sharing um the work that we're doing with the japanese to give them strike capability again to do more intelligence sharing uh, technology sharing we're doing that beginning that again with the koreans if we can build on AUKUS not to do nuclear submarines for japan or south korea but to to bring them into this larger technology sharing intelligence sharing military operations and training, I think we are demonstrating that we are determined to defend ourselves and our friends. Um, and I think that, again, this is something that this is a signal that Xi Jinping and Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin need to see. And I think they are seeing it. I think the kind of the reactions we get from, from both the Chinese and the Russians are indicative of the fact that they're not pleased that we're standing up for ourselves. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. It's it's one that you sort of wonder how much is enough, and you're always you know wondering you know how are they perceptions wise how how does the the Xi regime and the Putin regime see our efforts and in are we effectively signaling and is it a clear signal or a mixed signal? Uh, you know, it's you mentioned. Uh, North Korea and North Korea has long been sort of this, you know, enigma wrapped in a riddle, uh, much like the Soviets. And I, I wonder, as we look at uh, Kim Jong Un's effort to build a sufficient nuclear arsenal that our, you know, ballistic missile defense can't take out, you know, his efforts at shots, and he's building uh, a lot, you know, sort of tactical nuclear arsenal that you know short range. Do you think he's, you know, I, I've often, and now they're, they just said last week or so that they're building a space program and spy satellites. And so I'm, I'm wondering how 25 million starving people whose, 
you know, primary resource is, you know, they, they are U S dollar counterfeiters and then they engage in cybercrime and that's sort of their, that's their big business. How are they able to afford this, you know, this expansion of their arsenal, their space program, and, you know, to get to the point where they seem to be getting while still having 25 million starving North Koreans. I don't know how they're doing it. I don't want to get too far into North Korean <laughs> politics because I'm not an expert at all. But, but I mean, you know, these, these people don't know any better. You know, Kim has isolated them from the world. They're living the, 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 the poor lives that their parents and grandparents lived. And so they're kind of ignorant about what the kinds of things are happening elsewhere in the world. That's one of the great fears that the Kim regime has is, is letting people find out about the outside world. Um, this is clearly an area where, where when the money comes in, uh, the regime spends money on, on capabilities. But I would think, and I'm sure I'll be pilloried for saying this, what Kim Jong-un has done has been, has been very cautious. I mean, he's building weaponry. He's demonstrating weaponry. You know, he's hinting at blackmail by doing test flights. But he hasn't gone and attacked South Korea. He hasn't sunk a South Korean boat. He's much more measured than either his father or his grandfather. And I think part of that is a is a reflection of his respect for our capabilities and our will to defend ourselves and our allies in the in the region. Yeah, that's a that's a great point because I, I remember the first time I went to the DMZ and they you know I want you, they take you to the spot where the army officer was hacked to death with the axe. And, and then you, you learn about all of those incidences. And I, and for me, I, you know, I had never heard of, you know, I knew about Chonan and YPDO and a few of the more recent, but I didn't know that there were like 80 incidences in which the North Koreans had done really sort of precipitously what, what I would have thought would have initiated conflict and you're just thinking to yourself, man, how how have we never responded? How do I not know that this has gone on over the years? And you know what is what is in the mind of the North Koreans that they sort of think that this is you know acceptable behavior? And so it's it's been a challenge to to really nail down what they're thinking and what they're doing and why. Well, part of it too is he's 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 acting out because the more he gets ignored, the more he wants to, like a little kid jumping up and down and throwing things, wants wants recognition on the world stage. Um, by ignoring him, I think in, in in some sense we're putting him in his place. And but again, I don't. I think he's crafty. I think he's nasty and mean and 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 with ill intent. I don't think he's stupid. No. I think he's been very careful. Yeah, that's a it's a great point. And you know, I'm looking at the clock and it it's we're coming to the end of the show and before the show ends, I did I don't I don't think I've ever told you but when I was in the Middle East, I came back with a magic lamp that allows me to give it to my guest to make three wishes. And so I obviously want to give that that lamp to you to make those three wishes. So you've got these three wishes now and you know, what is it you, you wish for as you think about the nuclear arsenal and you think about the future for the United States? Well, the first wish would be that, that 
we recognize the dangerous nature of the world that we're in and the fact that that dictators can make changes, policy changes quickly, and that we don't have the time to rely on a defense industrial base over 15 years or 10 years to respond, that we've got to anticipate bad things happening. Second thing I'd like to see happen is that we eliminate obstacles to our ability to, to modernize. And we have serious and significant art obstacles in the NNSA. I, I think the new leadership, uh, Jill Ruby, Frank Rose, Marv Adams, they're doing a great job, but, but they have inherited a, a bulky and, and um, risk-resistant system working in 1940s and 1950s facilities. Um, that's become a, a huge a bottleneck in our ability to rebuild ourselves. And similarly, U.S. defense industry uh, needs to be able to have these multi-year contracts that allow them to refill our 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 arsenals, um, refill the stocks of war reserve munitions that we need to deter. Um, and finally, I would hope that through through this program and and the work of of your colleagues at ANWA, uh, that we are rebuilding the nuclear IQ of certainly uh, American policymakers and and more broadly the American public. I mean, you know, all too often you hear this nonsense that. Well, there's nuclear deterrence and nuclear war fighting. Well, nobody believes in nuclear war fighting. On the other hand, to have a credible deterrent, you have to be able to threaten with the enemy leadership values and to say, don't cross the line because the outcome will be worse for you than, than where you are today. So those would be my three three wishes, Adam. Yeah, those are three wishes I would share. But you, you brought up a great point that I, I want to sort of pick on that we haven't really talked about yet. And that is sort of the condition of the, the nuclear enterprise, the, the production, the design facilities, uh, you know, at the nuclear deterrent summit, maybe a month or two ago, it was a great opportunity to really see sort of where we are. And, you know, we talked a lot about, there was this, you know, sort of human, focus in terms of bringing in the people and then really main, maintaining them over the long term and building that expertise. But then also there's this challenge for, you know, like pit production, for example, and our ability to build new weapons. So if we, you know, as I look at it, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if in the next 12 months, you know, Vladimir Putin announces that you know, he's broken out of the New START treaty limits. Uh, I don't think anybody would be surprised or shocked. And then the the Russians, some of my colleagues at, at NSRI did a great study in which they looked at Chinese plutonium manufacturing. And they, they believe that the number of uh, the, um, the quantity of weapons grade plutonium is sufficient to build significantly more pits than we previously thought. And so therefore, you know, they, the, the Chinese may have more and have the capacity to build more. And so therefore we could see a world in which our two main adversaries have two or three times the number of strategic warheads, not to mention all the tactical and theater, and that we could be at a great disadvantage. And if, if you know, uh, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, Matt Kronig is right in that you know 
when it comes to nuclear crisis, whoever has the superior nuclear arsenal sort of achieves their objectives in the crisis. If that's true, it, the future doesn't look good for us. Well, I, I don't, I don't agree with that thesis. I mean, we were, you know, 10 to one or more in the Cuban missile crisis and both sides back down. So I, I, I think that thesis is, is, is wrong. Um, what I want to have us do is reach a level of deployed warheads that is sufficient to cover what the Russian and Chinese leadership values and also something for Kim Jong-un. If we are confident in our capability to cover our adversaries' target bases and have a sufficient reserve, I'm comfortable. I mean, if they want to build lots and lots of weapons and, and make the rubble bounce, that's on them. But we need to get ourselves to a point where we are confident in our ability to deter by having sufficient weapons to cover the target base. And we need to say that. We need to say we are confident in our deterrent. We, we have built something that we believe will work, and it's diverse, and it's got limited options, and it responds to presidential guidance, and it protects our allies as well as ourselves. And that's what we've done. And we will adjust as time and, and circumstances required. If the threat goes up, we'll have to add more. If the threat goes down, we may consider reducing it. But I think what we deploy has to respond to the threat situation that we're facing. And right now, I think very soon, we're going to have to start uploading our forces because the world is very different from what was conceived of in 2010. And we need to be able to deter Russia and China simultaneously against the possibility that they announce an alliance in a crisis. All right. Well, we are out of time. Frank Miller, thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure. It's uh, always good to hear from one of our leading nuclear thinkers. So, And, of course, you are that leading nuclear thinker. So thanks. Well, you're very kind. And thanks to you, the listeners of Nuclecast, for joining us on this episode, and we will see you next time. So Frank Miller, you know, he's one of the, you know, most widely respected and well-known folks in the nuclear enterprise. Uh, it's always good to talk to him. He's been around a long time, knows a lot of folks. He's still actively engaged and it's always good to bounce ideas and bounce thoughts off, off of him. And he's, he always has great responses that make you think. And so I, I really enjoyed talking to him and, you know, it was he, some folks think of him as, you know, sort of more of a hawk. But as I talked to him, I thought he was quite reasonable. You know, it's it's uh, I thought, man, I'm I'm the hawk here. And so I don't know why folks would uh, give uh, Frank uh, in anything other than the rap of being sort of a reasonable, careful thinker, because that's really what he is. So that was a great talk. I enjoyed it. This has been a production of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Grunthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.